open it up at the end so that Julianne can uh, take questions both from this audience and the regional audience. So, so Julianne is now, this is the fourth uh, topic. She's going to wrap it up with Hot Topics in Pediatric Dermatology. Dr. Julianne Mann, Assistant Professor of uh, Dermatology and Pediatrics here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and the Geisel School of Medicine. And we've all gotten to be quite friendly with her in the past few months. Take it away, Julie. Thank you. So I decided for this last session that we would do kind of a potpourri. So a few of you um, asked me specifically to cover some topics. I tried to cover um, the ones that were most frequently mentioned. Um, and so I, I structured this as a case-based talk today. So here we go. I have no conflicts of interest. So here are our objectives this morning. Um, I, I want us all to understand the association between psoriasis and increased cardiovascular risk in childhood, identify the risk of autoimmune comorbidities in patients with vitiligo, discuss features of spitz nevi and understand the controversies surrounding their management, appreciate the clinical spectrum of childhood rosacea, and recognize newly described forms of allergic contact dermatitis in children. So here's case one. So this was a little six-year-old girl who came to see me. She had, for the last year, been developing these worsening um, pink scaly plaques involving the face, trunk, and extremities. Her mom has, has psoriasis, as does his, her maternal grandmother, and her maternal aunt has systemic lupus. So the question is, this child's skin disease is associated with an increased which, risk of which of the following? A, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, B, glaucoma, C, metabolic syndrome, D, photosensitivity. So just think about that for a minute. Yeah, so here's her back. She has pretty extensive involvement. So the answer is C, metabolic syndrome. So pediatric psoriasis, um, actually about a third of psoriasis cases begin in adulthood, affects overall about 1% of children in the United States. It's primarily a TH1, and then in the last you know, f seven to eight years was, has been recognized this it's really also a primarily a TH17 disease. Um, you have increased levels of all these pro-inflammatory cytokines, TNF-alpha, interferon gamma, IL-2, 12, 17, and 23. And it, obviously the pathophysiology of psoriasis is complex, but involves inflammation, abnormal rapid keratinocyte proliferation and angiogenesis. And uh, I thought this was really interesting statistic. So in a, in a patient with severe psoriasis, it's estimated that about 20 billion T cells infiltrate the skin. So obviously psoriasis, we could spend a half a day talking about pediatric psoriasis, but I, I wanted to mention a few pearls that perhaps um, would be new information for you all. So um, I think one important point about psoriasis is that in children, the scale is often much finer than what you see in adults. So when you look in a textbook and you see that really thick micaceous scale, or sometimes it's called ostracious scale, that's not that common in young children. Usually you see a very fine scale scale. Typically symmetric involvement is typically not pruritic, although the scalp often is, but the rest of the body usually kids are not particularly bothered by psoriasis. Um, much more often children have facial involvement as compared to adults, and I'll show you some pictures of that. Annular morphology is also common in children, um, and the diaper area is probably the most common area for infantile psoriasis. 
So there are a number of different subtypes. I've listed a few of them here. I think there's really growing appreciation in the world of, of dermatology that probably these are different diseases. Pustular psoriasis probably has different, it seems as though it has different genetics. It may have different triggers from typical plaque psoriasis, from guttate psoriasis, but right now they're all lumped and then subtyped. So pustular psoriasis typically ex appears explosively in a child with no previous history of psoriasis. Um, it's often accompanied by malaise, fever, and hypocalcemia can, can result. Um, and when this subset occurs in neonates, it can actually be life-threatening. Guttate psoriasis, typically triggered by a strep infection, most commonly strep pharyngitis. Um, so any child presenting with guttate psoriasis or suspicion thereof should have a throat swab as well as a perianal swab. Nail psoriasis, um, characterized by pitting, onycholysis, meaning lifting of the nail plate, and subungual debris can, can mimic onychomycosis. Um, and what's interesting is that children and adults who have nail involvement, that's an independent predictor of, the, of uh, arthritis down the road. So patients with nail psoriasis are at higher risk for developing psoriatic arthritis, so they need to be, um, as with all children, but particularly that subset, monitored really closely. Um, and then about one in five children who have psoriatic arthritis will also develop an anterior uveitis in the eye. So those children, I always screen them for symptoms of um, photophobia, eye pain, um, that sort of thing. So here are examples of pretty classic facial psoriasis in children. So you can see the scale is not that thick, particularly on the face. Um, both of these children, this was totally asymptomatic. Forehead, I think, is the most common area that you see it. Um, and uh, slightly thicker plaques here, and you can see the picture on the left. He also has eyebrow and eyelid involvement. And then the child on the right, that shoulder and upper arm, you can see the scale is slightly thicker. Infantile psoriasis um, typically presents in the diaper area, so the British coined this napkin psoriasis. And um, I find the, the most helpful thing for making this diagnosis is that it is really sharply demarcated. And usually the child is not bothered by it. So sometimes I think it's tricky. They can start out with an irritant diaper dermatitis and it can become really refractory and sort of over time the morphology changes. Um, so sometimes you start out with one thing and it ends up as another. Um, but this is a really typical picture of, of napkin psoriasis in, in an infant. Oftentimes does eventually spread to involve the trunk and other areas of the body. Um, and again, because the diaper area is so damp, usually there's very little scale present in the diaper area. This is pustular psoriasis. Um, some of you may have been involved in this patient's care. So he was a patient sent up to me from um, the southern part of the state with a really explosive onset. Pustular psoriasis, he was febrile. He felt really crummy. Um, and he, you can see this form um, is just really dramatic when it first appears. So he has desquamation. And this picture, that anterior neck, just lakes of pus. Those are all pustules coalescing. And guttate psoriasis, so very small monomorphic pink scaly plaques and papules usually predominantly on the trunk, triggered by strep infection most of the time. Examples of the nail findings you see, so pitting on the upper left, onycholysis on the upper right, along with some pitting. Um, then sometimes you just get sort of a non-specific or, you know, kind of roughened, dystrophic ridged nail.
Pityriasis amiantacea, I think um, this is actually quite common. I see this a lot. So I think of pityriasis amiantacea as severe subderm kind of um, moving towards psoriasis on the spectrum. Because I think, you know, SIBO psoriasis, seborrheic dermatitis and psoriasis, at least in a certain subset of patients, is really on one continuum. So when you see this really adherent scale that's just sort of in clumps attached to the hair shafts, that's really bound down to the scalp, that really is the beginnings of scalp psoriasis in a child. And this form of psoriasis on the scalp actually can scar. So um, if you try to lift all of this scale up, um, it actually will bleed underneath and oftentimes leave an area of scarring. Even if you don't lift the scale up, this inflammation, if it's left there, um, will eventually cause an area of alopecia. So it's important, really important to treat this. So let's talk about the connection between psoriasis and metabolic syndrome. So I highlighted a few studies that I thought were uh, illustrative. Um, there's a study in China looking at 332 patients with plaque psoriasis and, um, and comparing them with matched controls. And they found that the odds ratio of being obese, if you have psoriasis, was um, overweight or obese, was 2.4 or 2.6 for obesity. In the United States, um, one study looked at 211 patients. They found that the mean body mass index was the 87th percentile and that over a third had a BMI of greater than the 95th percentile. So this, this connection really started out, I think, um, as an observational, this sort of, you know, dermatologists and pediatricians, as well as primary care doctors in the adult world, noticing that patients with psoriasis just more often than chance would seem to predict were overweight and obese. Um, there was an international study done of 614 children with plaque psoriasis, and the odds ratio of having a waist circumference greater than the 90th percentile in children with psoriasis was 2.5. And the more severe the psoriasis was, the more marked that, um, that correlation was. So the odds ratio is over three if you have severe psoriasis. So I think the, the question of what, you know, which is causing which is still up for debate. So a lot of um, my parent and patients of uh, parents of my patients will say, you know, this child is so embarrassed by his terrible psoriasis that he doesn't want to wear shorts. He doesn't want to go swimming. He doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want to go out and play. He just um, wants to stay inside. And obviously that contributes to the development over overweight and obesity. But then I think the thought is that also perhaps, you know, there's an increasing understanding that overweight and obesity is an inflammatory condition and that those adipocytes are metabolically active and they're secreting and releasing these pro-inflammatory cytokines that probably in a subset of genetically at-risk kids triggers the onset of psoriasis. So it's, it's probably both ways, but this is still, you know, pretty new data, so it's really still being teased apart. Um, so in addition to obesity, insulin resistance and dyslipidemia is also present at higher rates in children with psoriasis. Um, another study by Amy Power at Northwestern, a pediatric dermatologist there, um, showed even, even um, more um, marked odds ratios. So severe psoriasis odds ratio of obesity is almost five compared to controls. So... Um, 
another study at, at, at Tufts, um, 20 children between 9 and 17 years old, so 30% of them actually met diagnostic criteria for metabolic syndrome. And they looked at the NANES data and age matched the kids with psoriasis to controls and used the NANES data to predict what would sort of what would be the baseline rate of metabolic syndrome in the background population, and they found it was 7.4 percent, and that's a statistically significant difference. Um, they also found an increased um, statistically um, increased um, fasting blood glucose in the psoriasis cohort and the lower HDL. So um, in adults, this, uh, the, the risk of cardiovascular disease is really becoming well-defined. Um, so this was a large study done in the UK, um, 8,700 patients with psoriatic arthritis and 138,000 patients with psoriasis. And they found that um, patients with psoriasis had heart, higher rates of MIs, even when you control for all the other traditional cardiovascular risk factors. The greatest risk was among young patients with severe psoriasis. So the, the the risk, um, relative risk of a cardiac infarction mm -hmm. was 3.1 in those patients. Um, and then there have been a number of studies starting to come out showing that if you put those patients on uh, a DMARD, a disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug, mm -hmm. that it actually mediates that risk and, and lessens the risk. So I think um, this is a really important thing for all of us to be talking to our patients with psoriasis about so that they're aware. Um, so this concept of the psoriatic march. We all know about the atopic march, but the psoriatic march um, really suggests that this inflammation, perhaps from obesity, um, leads to the development of psoriasis, which then leads to the development of insulin resistance and then the cardiovascular comorbidities that come downstream. So this systemic inflammation that is seen in psoriasis with all those additional billions of circulating T cells it probably predisposes to this pro-atherogenic lipoprotein profile and large vessel inflammation. So we really should be looking at psoriasis as a cutaneous manifestation of a systemic of systemic inflammation, and we shouldn't be thinking of it as a skin-limited disease. So patients with more severe psoriasis or other metabolic syndrome risk factors should we should be putting those kids on an, on a systemic medication for their overall health, not just for their skin manifestations. Um, just a brief mention, um, there are some studies just recently in the last few years coming out really looking at psoriasis and the risk of depression. Um, so even after all factors are adjusted for, it's about an odds ratio of two compared to controls. Um, and it seems like it actually doesn't matter whether you have severe psoriasis or more limited psoriasis, that the impact is across all subsets. So when I see a patient with psoriasis for the first time, I always counsel the patient and their parents about this increased risk of cardiovascular disease. I don't necessarily do it at the first visit, particularly if they're kind of overwhelmed with thinking about choosing between methotrexate and Enbrel, or, you know, it's a lot to process sometimes. Um, but at least sometime in the first few visits, I always talk with them about that. Um, if the patient is a healthy BMI, I really give them kudos for that and encourage them to keep um, up with a healthy lifestyle, if they're overweight or obese, I definitely focus on that at follow-up visits with, um, with a family. 
And um, I always do an annual fasting lipids at LFTs and a fasting glucose in patients generally eight years old and, and up, particularly if they have any other risk factors. Um, and then there are there definitely anecdotally we see that patients who lose weight, often their psoriasis improves. So I think anecdotally, although we don't, you know, we don't have studies to really back that up yet, um, I'm sure we will. Um, it's just a matter of time. Okay, so um, let's talk about vitiligo and the risk of, of comorbid autoimmune conditions. Okay, so this child, if you can let your eyes adjust and appreciate the depigmented patches on his upper eyelids, he is at increased risk of which of the following? A, linear morphia, B, systemic lupus, C, thyroid disease, D, alopecia areata, or E, all of the above? The answer, oh, here we go. Here's some more pictures of him. So the answer is all of the above. So I'll let you look back at those again. So patients with vitiligo have an increased risk of a whole host of comorbid autoimmune conditions. So vitiligo affects, depending on which um, ethnic population you look at, anywhere between 0.5 and 2% of population worldwide. Um, there are, are uh, multiple genetic susceptibility loci that have been identified, um, and so there's definitely a genetic component to vitiligo, but also uh, environmental influences. Um, presents as well-demarcated depigmented patches with a positive Kevner phenomenon, so Kevnerization means that any area um, with increased friction or minor skin trauma, that the skin condition tends to come out in that area. So vitiligo often kevnerizes. I see it a lot on the knees and um, shins, especially soccer players. They get it right along where they're getting kicked and their shin guards are rubbing. Um, so in those depigmented patches, there are no functional melanocytes. And we know for sure that the melanocytes are being, are, are destroyed in vitiligo, but we don't exactly understand how or why they're being destroyed. So for a long time, it was, I think, assumed that it was an autoimmune destruction of melanocytes by circulating T cells, CD8 T cells, and now, actually, I think there's a better appreciation that it's probably more complicated than that. And again, there may be different subsets of vitiligo where the pathogenesis is slightly different. Um, so the going, the current theories are perhaps it is this autoimmune destruction, perhaps it's an intrinsic defect in melanocyte survival. So perhaps they're just self-destructing because of some problem um, intrinsic to them, or perhaps it's oxidative stress that the body doesn't deal with properly um, that leads to their downfall. So um, we have a, a little ways to go in our understanding of vitiligo, but um, we certainly know that there's an autoimmune component to it. So vitiligo is very common in children. About half of patients it begins prior to the age of 20 years, and in a quarter of patients it begins before the age of eight. Um, the mean age in pediatric patients is six years, um, and it's often accompanied by multiple halo nevi. So if you see a halo nevus on, you know, a well child exam, it's worthwhile doing a full skin check to look for any other signs of vitiligo. Um, and any of you who've worked with me in clinic have probably seen my little black light flash light, but um, I, I have a little black light, and it's a tiny flashlight. You can get them on Amazon, and I just keep it in my pocket. It's a whole lot easier than, like, always trying to find the woods lamp, which is never where it's supposed to be. So for, like, 
nine bucks, you can get a black light flashlight. And it's really useful for looking at the extent of vitiligo and, um, and also for looking at pigmented birthmarks and things like that. So here's an example of a preschooler with vitiligo chemnerizing to the diaper area from that friction. Perioral area is very common and sometimes you see a child who starts out with a lip lickers dermatitis that's eczematous and then all of a sudden they develop vitiligo in that area. The eyelids very commonly involved. Dorsal hands and knees, that's a really typical distribution for generalized vitiligo. And then segmental vitiligo, which, which is probably a different disease, although related, um, because the prognosis of segmental vitiligo is really good. Um, but it's interesting, it presents as sort of this band-like area, and almost always you can get these kids to repigment. Um, poliosis or depigmentation of hair is very common in vitiligo. Um, you can see that in all ages, um, and sometimes it can be really dramatic, kind of a calico cat-like appearance on the, um, on the scalp. In the genital area, um, sometimes it can be tough to tell the difference between vitiligo and lichen sclerosis, um, but if you see fissures or petechiae um, or real atrophy, obviously that's going to be lichen sclerosis, um, but vitiligo can present in this area as well. So let's talk about the comorbidities. Um, so this was a nice study just this year in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, um, a, a chart review of almost 1,100 patients, including children and adults. Um, that and this, These authors show that 20% of the patients with vitiligo had a history of one or more comorbid autoimmune diseases. Um, so those with non-segmental vitiligo were twice as likely to have an associated autoimmune. So segmental vitiligo, better prognosis, less risk of an associated autoimmune condition, generalized vitiligo, higher risk. Um, thyroid disease was the number one most common comorbidity, seen in 12% of patients with vitiligo. Of those with thyroid disease, hypothyroidism was the most common, but you can also see Hashimoto's and Graves. Um, and then auto alopecia areata was the number two most common um, comorbidity. So here's just a nice graph, and if you look at the x-axis, you can see all of the conditions. These are all statistically significant differences. So thyroid disease, alopecia areata, inflammatory bowel disease, pernicious anemia, Guillain-Barre, systemic lupus, discoid lupus, linear morphia, morphia myasthenia gravis, and Sjogren's. All of these were increased in patients who have vitiligo. Um, the other interesting thing that uh, is really being recently looked at in the literature is vitamin D status and how it relates to vitiligo. So there are multiple studies showing that patients with vitiligo are statistically more likely to have low vitamin D levels. So um, I just highlighted a couple of studies, case control studies. So one with 30 vitiligo patients showing that the mean serum vitamin D level in the controls was almost twice that of vitiligo patients. Um, so for, serum vitamin D of 40 on average versus 25. And then another case control where they show that 97.5% of patients were vitamin D deficient versus 5 out of 40 or 12.5 of controls. Um, so the question is, again, is this chicken or the egg question? Is it that patients with vitiligo are really hypervigilant about sunscreen and they're embarrassed by their vitiligo so they cover up? Um, Perhaps that's part of the contribution, but we know that so much of vitamin D status is determined um, by something other than sunlight exposure. I mean, even surfers in Hawaii who are out in the sun every day, there's a 
proportion of them that are vitamin D deficient. So there's obviously a genetic and environmental influences. Um, and then the question is, could low vitamin D levels can contribute to the development of vitiligo? Because we know vitamin D has a lot of immunomodulatory effects and also vitamin D affects um, melanogenesis or the sort of birth of new melanocytes. So um, we're not, you know, it seems like it's probably both ways. Um, but I always check vitamin D status in all of my new patients with vitiligo. So here's the workup that I always do. I always check a CBC um, to just screen for pernicious anemia, thyroid function tests, a serum vitamin D level, and then a review of systems to screen for any other potential autoimmune conditions, particularly if there's a family history. And then I always talk to them a lot about this importance of sunscreen um, everywhere, but especially to the affected areas. <clears throat> okay, next topic, let's talk about Spitz nevi. So Sophie Spitz was the dermatologist who first described Spitz nevi, and that's why that, that's how they get their name. Um, and she originally um, felt that this was you know, a form of juvenile melanoma, um, and that was sort of the original publication, which um, basically meant that f since Spitz nevi have been introduced into the dermatology literature, it's really, really been fraught with controversy over whether these are benign or malignant or somewhere in between. So this is a four-year-old otherwise healthy male with a four-month history of rapidly growing nodule that's just over a centimeter on the left forearm. So this is a spitz nevus. What is the most appropriate next management step? A, freeze it. B, do a shave biopsy. C, do an excisional biopsy. Or D, try some amiquimod. Yeah, so the answer is C, excisional biopsy. Now, if you put 100 pediatric dermatologists in a room and survey everyone, you'll, you'll find some that will say, oh, I would just shave that or I would just watch it clinically. But I think the majority of us would say that any spitz nevus that is changing, um, and I'll go over some criteria for this, that deserves an excisional biopsy. So let's talk about why. So spitz nevi are benign melanocytic neoplasms that occur almost exclusively in children. They can become atypical the way any other nevi can. Um, they typically present as a solitary asymptomatic dome-shaped papule. They can be pink, they can be reddish-brown, and they can be jet black and all the colors in between. Um, they can be smooth or verrucous. The face is the most common location, but they can occur anywhere on the body. And they always have this, and almost always have this rapid initial growth phase that's really um, freaks parents out and um, and they can mimic a pyogenic granuloma and sometimes um, I see PGs or so you know uh, uh, an outside physician who shaves and cauterizes something they think is going to be a PG and it winds up being a spitz nevus. So here's an example. If you look at this girl's iris, you can see she's very fair. She's got type 1 skin, she's got light blue eyes, and here she pops up with this black papule on the cheek that kind of comes out of nowhere and in six weeks is this size. So this is a spitz nevus. Here's an example of a spitz nevus that was mimicking a pyogenic granuloma. Spitz nevi, if you can remember that first picture that I showed you here, they can have often what we call a frombiziform appearance, so raspberry-like. So that's a good tip-off that you might be looking at a spitz nevus. So here's another example of a frombiziform pink papule that you might think was a PG, but these don't bleed the way PGs do. So if you ask the parents and they say, oh, no, it's never bled, that's unlikely to be a PG. 
So the reason, part of the reason, in addition to the fact that Sophie Spitz calls this a juvenile melanoma, Spitz nevi have histologic features that overlap with those of melanoma. So dermatopathologists, I think all of them kind of universally dread reading Spitz nevus biopsies because they have a lot of features of melanoma under the microscope and they can look really scary. Um, so death from metastatic <coughs> Spitzoid melanoma or metastatic atypical spitz nevi occurs in children. It's not common, but it occurs, and it's the thing that kind of really frightens dermatopathologists and pediatric dermatologists alike. Um, and what's really tricky is if you, on, in the cases of, um, you know, where a child had an atypical spitz and a sentinel node biopsy was done, which, by the way, is not validated, we typically don't recommend it, you find spitz nevus cells in their lymph node, so so-called nodal nevi or metastatic spits, whether or not they're benign or malignant. So benign spitz nevus cells hang out in lymph nodes, and so it's really this is really a murky um, murky territory. So controversy abounds regarding the appropriate strategies for diagnosing and treating spitz nevi, and there's no reliable test that will let us do a biopsy and with complete certainty tell whether a spitz nevus is benign or malignant. And I have to say, I think since in the last few years now that we're doing comparative genomic hybridization and fluorescent in situ hybridization on many skin biopsies that are challenging to interpret of melanocytic neoplasms, I think has actually made it even worse because we have publications supporting the CGH findings and mutations that are typical of melanoma, and it's sort of tempting to want to use those same set of criteria to evaluate spitz nevi in children, but we just don't really have those studies for children. And so what often happens is a spitz nevus is biopsied, it gets tested up and down, sent to four different dermatopathologists, there's a, you know, identified number of mutations in it but we don't really know what they mean, and we don't really know what they mean prognostically. So it's a really challenging area. I would say it's probably one of the most challenging areas of my um, practice. Um, but there have been a number of studies sh done showing that pediatric dermatologists really feel that the vast majority of spitz nevi are benign, and we are more likely to clinically monitor them, whereas general dermatologists are more likely to recommend excision for all of them. And plastic surgeons recommend excision. Obviously, this is a generalization, but the studies have shown that plastic surgeons recommend excision of all of them with pretty big margins, like melanoma in situ margins. So there's a, a big range of what you'll find of how people manage these. Um, so typically, so this is the set of guidelines that I think most pediatric dermatologists follow. So spitz nevi that, have, that are classic in their features and in a prepubertal child can be monitored clinically. But and with evaluation every three to six months until the lesion has stabilized in its appearance. The spitz nevi that should be excised are any spitz nevus in a postpubertal patient, anyone that's greater than a centimeter, that's growing rapidly, that's asymmetric either macroscopically or when you look at it with a dermatoscope, that's painful or that's scabbing. Um, so the challenges that I see this like over and over and over in my practice is this spitz nevus is biopsied with a shave, it's transected at the base, it's read as atypical, this question of whether it could be a spitzoid melanoma is raised, and the child then has to undergo a second procedure of an excision. So um, and oftentimes because when you shave you only get a small bit of tissue, the pathologist will say they're unable to, f to fully evaluate the lesion because they don't have enough tissue. 
So those are the two reasons why most pediatric dermatologists say if you're going to take off a spitz, you should excise it so you get the entire thing. It's one procedure. It's out. The child is done. They don't have to be you know, subjected to repeated procedures. Um, so the majority of shave biopsies have positive margins, whereas um, about a quarter of excised spitz nevi, that's all told, I would say, I think in my practice, it's much less than that when I excise. Um, and so 96% of pediatric dermatologists say they really avoid partial biopsies, i.e. shape biopsies of spitz nevi. So I typically excise with conservative margins unless I'm really worried about a particular spitz nevus, but I usually excise with two millimeter margins. And you just have to be aware that if you send the ch a child with a spitz nevus to a general surgeon, they might wind up getting huge margin margins taken and probably overly aggressive excisions. So here are examples of spitz nevi that I chose to excise. So the one on the left, larger than a centimeter. The one on the, on the right, a child with an ulcerated spitz nevus on the cheek. A larger one on the leg. Here's a typical small one that I just observed on the shoulder. This one obviously needs excision. Pretty funky looking. Um, just other pictures just to give you a sense of kind of the clinical spectrum of spitz nevi. So just a brief mention about true bona fide childhood melanoma. So childhood melanoma, uh, you know, obviously this is a huge topic, but I just put in, wanted to put in a few slides to touch upon this. Um, so most, many occur within congenital nevi, but most occur de novo. And the ones that occur de novo are often amelanotic. And this is another reason why spitz nevi is a, it's a tricky topic, because melanoma in kids typically presents as a, just a pink to red papule. And I think a lot of people don't know that. They're really fixated on the on dark moles and black and brown pigment. But amelanotic melanoma is the most common way that prepubertal de novo melanoma presents. Um, and they often resemble PGs. So I never take it for granted that something's a PG. Whenever I remove a PG, I always try to do a nice deep shave to get a good amount of, um, of skin at the base of it so that on the chance that it is a melanoma, our pathologists have something to work with. Um, and then 70% of prepubertal melanomas show spitzoid features versus about a third of melanomas in, in adolescence. So the younger kids more likely have spitzoid melanoma, meaning when they look under the microscope, they see features of spitz nevi, but it winds up being a melanoma. So um, melanoma in children, the diagnosis is typically really delayed. So the, there's a couple studies done showing the mean time elapsed from the appearance of a lesion to the presentation to the doctor was 12 months, and that the majority, um, or that not the majority, but many children, so 43% had been told initially that the lesion was benign. And I think this is really, this is these amelanotic melanomas that kind of they look fairly innocuous, especially if you're not aware that melanoma can present that way. Um, and 10 of these 36 ch children with melanoma had a delay in treatment, and seven of them eventually died. Um, and that's another study showing that 60% of parents reported a delay in diagnosis once they sought care. So it's just important for this all to be for this to be on all of our radar. Okay, um, next topic. So let's talk about childhood rosacea. This is a 21-month-old, otherwise healthy male with six months history of a fluctuant pink papule on the cheek. He's had a 
chalazion on his eye, and then since then he's had this kind of persistent crusting. So if you look at the top of the picture along his lower eyelid margin, see the kind of pink crusty area? And that's been really persistent. Parents are doing like they're washing with baby shampoo and it's just not going away. And this papule has been there for six months. It's just hanging out. So what's the next, what's the most appropriate management? A, IND it. B, excise it. C, treat him with Keflex. Or D, watchful waiting. So the answer is watchful waiting. So let's talk about what this child has. So this nodule on the cheek is something called idiopathic, idiopathic aseptic facial granuloma. Kind of a mouthful, but this is something that I think most pediatricians have never heard of. Um, and you'll see it in your practice. Once It's one of those things, once, you, once you've once you heard of this, you'll, you'll notice this in patients. And it goes away on its own in the vast majority of cases, but it's nice to be able to tell parents what it is. So typically it's a pink to purple soft fluctuant to rubbery painless nodule or papule on the cheek. Average size is a centimeter, but they can be pretty big. They can be up to two centimeters. Most patients just have one lesion. If you IND it, you just get sterile pus. Bacterial cultures are negative. Many patients have a history of chalazion and or, peri or official dermatitis or a family history of rosacea. So um, this entity was first described in 2007 in the British Journal of Dermatology. This was a prospective study of 30 patients, um, and they mapped, you can see every blue dot is one patient, and they mapped where these things occur. And there's this triangle on the central cheek where, for whatever reason, these are most likely to occur. It takes, on average, 11 months for these to spontaneously go away, but it can take up to two years. Antibiotics really don't work. I mean, four out of 26 patients had some improvement. Um, so I'm going to show you some more pictures. Here's another child with a more subtle, subtle papule. And here, these are from um, publications in the literature. So if you see, it, look up the patient on the right, see that lower eyelid crusting? That's a really telltale sign of this. I've seen probably, um, you know, once every few months I see a child with this. And if you look carefully at their eyelids, you'll see this. And here's that central cheek triangle. And so before and after. So this is when the child first presented. Look at the eyelid. And then on the right, um, 12 months later with spontaneous resolution. So, um, so this a group in Bordeaux did a retrospective review that identified 38 children with this condition. Average age of diagnosis is th three and a half, so it's, this is usually a toddler phenomenon. Um, and they called all the parents up of the kids who had this, who'd been given this diagnosis, and they asked them about this was a, a five-year span. Um, after the diagnosis, they asked them if they had symptoms of rosacea, the children themselves, flushing, um, telangiectasias, papules, pustules, without comedones, ocular rosacea symptoms. And um, at least two clinical signs of rosacea were, were found in about 40% of patients. Um, so, and, and ocular rosacea was quite common. Um, so basically, this, these authors and several other authors have essentially uh, um, proposed that this is a manifestation of childhood rosacea because we know ocular chalasia are a manifestation. We know periorificial dermatitis, and so idiopathic facial aseptic granuloma is just part of that spectrum. So it's important to recognize this is a diagnosis of exclusion. So if a child has a new onset five-day history of a fluctuant nodule on the cheek, obviously you have to think about staph, you have to think about dental sinus, um, an inflamed or ruptured pilometricoma. Those are all things on the differential. Um, 
and, you know, other things, Langerhans cell histiocytosis or inflammatory. So infantile acne can do this. But I think um, if you have a child who's had this, if the parents say, yeah, she's had it there for eight months, it's really unlikely to be infectious in nature at that point. So here's, for comparison, examples of children who I've seen with ruptured pilometricomas. Um, the difference is when you feel a, a pilometricoma, almost always you can feel that subcutaneous, really hard lump under the surface, whereas idiopathic facial aseptic granuloma, it's just a fluctuant kind of area. There's nothing palpable to it. Periorificial dermatitis is another manifestation of childhood rosacea. Um, so this child actually um, is hard to see in this picture, but her upper left, or her sorry, her lower left eyelid, she had one of these crusted areas with granulomatous inflammation. She had an idiopathic facial aseptic granuloma, and she has periorificial dermatitis. So she had like the full <laughs> triple whammy there. Um, pink papules and pustules, and often some scaling around the mouth. Um, we see this definitely precipitated by topical so even over-the-counter hydrocortisone, asthma inhalers, kids get it around their mouth from that. Um, and, and you just ask about chalazion history. So this is more florid periorificial dermatitis. Pustules around the eye. Okay, so in the last few minutes, let's just do some fun cases of newly described forms of allergic contact dermatitis in children. This is an eight-year-old, previously healthy girl who came to see me with this three-month history of worsening eczematous dermatitis on the buttocks and posterior thighs. This was keeping her up at night. She was miserable. It was so itchy. So which, is, which of the following is the correct diagnosis? A, molluscum. B, dermatitis herpetiformis in association with celiac disease. C, child abuse. Or D, allergic contact dermatitis to toilet seat cleaners. So you know what section of the talk we're in. So <laughs> the answer is D, allergic contact dermatitis to toilet seat cleaners. So um, this was originally described in 2010 um, by Bernard Cohen and colleagues, um, and they coined it toilet seat contact dermatitis in children. There was a publication in Pediatrics that was a really nice review. Um, and basically, the authors um, postulated that this was caused by either allergic or, in some cases, it's just an irritant dermatitis from toilet seat cleaners. That's really an emerging clinical presentation because 15 years ago, very few people were cleaning their toilet seats with Lysol wipes and Clorox wipes. And now that these, you know, disinfecting wipes are everywhere in every grocery store. A lot of people use them for convenience when they're cleaning their own bathrooms. So um, the key is, if you look at this child, it's very perfectly circular, right where the toilet bowl is. And so it's posterior thighs, lateral and inferior buttocks. Um, and it is remarkable. I mean, it's sort of a running joke between myself and my, my scribe because she knows whenever I see a patient with this and I say, so tell me, what do you use to clean the toilet seat at home? 99.9% .9 of the time is either Clorox wipes or Lysol wipes. And those are the culprits that I see in my practice. Um, and it's it's uncanny how when you ask a child who has this, you ask their parents, they always say one of those two. Um, and so uh, staph super infection, so you can see this child was impetigenized as well just because she was scratching so much, she was so uncomfortable. Um, 
I often see this in children. Um, they'll be fine all summer, and then they go back to school, and it's the school that's using these cleaners that are really pretty harsh disinfectants. Um, and so, at home, if it's if it's um, t you know in a younger child that's only at home, and it's the family's toilet seat cleaners, I recommend that they switch to a dilute vinegar solution, and they just spritz the toilet seat with that, and then they can use whatever they want to clean the bowl, but just not the toilet seat. Um, when it's the school it's a more challenging problem. So I often have to write letters and give the child permission to use a staff bathroom that's cleaned with something different. Because as you can imagine, for a five-year-old, even a 10-year-old, trying to get them to line the toilet seat is just not happening. I mean, it's so even, it's tricky. So um, I do have parents who have actually sewn fabric toilet seat covers that the child brings with them to school and then brings home and they want them every night, but it can be a real issue. Um, here's an example of a very subtle case, but it's amazing how many children I see whose parents say they've been living with this for years and they just have a diagnosis of eczema and nobody's, oh, you know, recognized the connection. Okay, this is a previously healthy 17-year-old female who presented to the ED with severe facial swelling and angioedema after dyeing her hair at home. This is the first time she'd used a hair dye. What is the chemical responsible for this reaction? A, nickel, P, paraphenylene diamine, C, formaldehyde, or D, chromium? Here's how she presented. So this is paraphenylene diamine, um, allergic contact dermatitis. So the next question is, how do children initially become sensitized to this? Because you can't get allergic contact dermatitis the first time you're exposed to something. So she had never used a hair dye before. So what did she come in contact with earlier in her life that sensitized her? A, nail polish, B, lip balm, C, mascara, D, a temporary tattoo. And the answer is a temporary tattoo. So paraphenylene diamine is found in temporary tattoos, particularly the ones with black pigment in them. And it is also found in hair dyes, particularly over-the-counter hair dyes. And there are countless cases. If you Google this, you will come up with, you know, a hundred Instagram shots that teenagers have taken of themselves before and after having this allergic, reac allergic reaction to hair dye. And it can be life-threatening. It can be really scary. Um, so here's another example. This is just one that I found on, you know, one of these Instagram shots that a teenager posted of herself. Um, and so um, it's not just allergic contact dermatitis, but often is accompanied by angioedema and sometimes full-blown anaphylaxis. So temporary tattoos, I mean, they're everywhere. It's really wild how often. I mean, my preschooler came home from school the other day with a henna, ta you know, with henna having been painted on by one of her teachers, and I thought, oh, okay, well, there's <laughs> so much for that. Um, but you know, it's really tricky. So I think the most important thing is that um, we probably can't prevent exposure to temporary tattoos, but we can educate about this possibility of an allergic reaction to paraphenylene diamine in hair dyes, and it's less likely you're less likely to find um, that compound in a professional hair dye in a salon. Um, and now if you look for paraphenylene diamine or PPD free hair dyes, you can find them. And it's sort of a big, it's like PABA free sunscreens were 15 years ago. So there's increasing recognition of this entity. Okay. 10 month old with a four month history of itchy eczematous plaques on the posterior scalp and extensor elbows and legs. 
So the posterior scalp, kind of a band-like distribution, sort of a funny distribution for atopic dermatitis. I mean, atopics often get scalp involvement, but it's usually all over. And then this child's trunk is totally clear, just these sort of points on the extensor elbows. So what is the cause of his allergic contact dermatitis? A, the family cat. B, a chemical in his sunscreen. C, parabens in his mom's hand moisturizer. Or D, his car seat. Yeah, so this is car seat dermatitis. Um, so it's characterized by symmetric and bilateral involvement of both elbows, the upper posterior thighs, and the lateral legs. Occipital scalp is involved in a band-like pattern where the baby's head comes in contact with the seat. Um, it's more common among atopic infants, um, and it's more common in the war warmer months when babies are just in a onesie in their car seat. So I'll show you some more pictures from some of the publications of this entity. It can be really... Um, pretty severe. Um, this child has kind of this weepy plaque on the back of the head. And you can see, you know, right where the skin comes in contact with the car seat. And these, um, a number of authors have observed that um, it's more common with these newer car seats that have this kind of trendy, shiny, nylon-like material. Um, and anecdotally, parents report, I think, with that, this shiny material that it doesn't breathe as well, and then their children get more, the babies get more sweaty, and that when, anytime you have sweat and rubbing, then allergic contact dermatitis is more common. So these are a number of authors that have postulated it's perhaps the flame retardants. Okay, last case. This is a patient of mine in um, my practice in Portland. So this is a six-month-old. He came to see me with an itchy plaque on the upper back. What's the cause of this allergic contact dermatitis? A, the tagless label on his onesie. B, his father's cologne. C, the snap on his bib. Or D, his high chair harness. So this is tagless label allergic contact dermatitis. Um, and uh, I've seen a number of cases of this actually. Um, we're about to submit for publication a case series that we did where we actually um, because the companies, uh, Carter's and Gerber, were not very cooperative with sharing the ingredients of these tagless labels with us, we actually had them, um, a colleague, a dermatology colleague of ours, had them um, did mass spectrometry, and we actually isolated compounds, and then we patch tested children to it to, to prove it. Um, so that's unpublished data, but we know that this is a real phenomenon. And if you, um, here, sometimes it's more subtle, um, but if you look, it's right where that tagless label corresponds. So if anyone sees a child with this, I would love to see them. Please send them to me. We can add them to our case series. Um, if you Google this, there are, there are websites including one of my favorites, Carter's Tagless Nightmares.blogspot.com. <laughs> and this is not an uncommon problem. So a lot of babies get this. And it's really hard to find onesies that don't have tagless labels in them now. Um, and sometimes it's really, especially if the child is put down for a nap and they sweat, and you can see how sharply demarcated this reaction is. Some of them can be bolus and really blistering. Um, so here's just more Google images. If you Google tagless labels rash, here's what you come up with. And there's actually a huge class action lawsuit in California of a group of parents suing um, these children's clothing wear companies. So, okay, so um, just to summarize, a psoriasis in children is associated with an increased risk of metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular risk, which may be mediated by treatment with DMARTs. One in five patients with vitiligo will have a comorbid autoimmune condition, most commonly hypothyroidism, so they definitely need to be screened. Um, 
spits nevi with concerning features merit excisional biopsy. The childhood rosacea spectrum encompasses periorificial dermatitis, ocular chalasia, and idiopathic aseptic facial granuloma. Toilet seat cleaners, car seat fabrics, paraphenylene diamine in hair dyes, and henna tattoos, and tagless onesie labels can all cause allergic contact dermatitis in children. So thank you. It's really been wonderful speaking to you all. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's true. I think um, I typically screen every year or two. So if there's a strong autoimmune family history, I often will screen the child yearly um, or just ask their pediatrician to tack it on to whatever blood work they might be doing. Um, if there's no family history of autoimmunity, um, I don't necessarily do it every year, maybe every two, or obviously if they develop symptoms that are suggestive, yeah. And um, almost never. And so I think the thing is to identify them and prevent an aggressive procedure from being done. So I would say the majority of patients, I mean, I just saw one yesterday who had been seen by an ENT in another part of the state who recommended excision under general anesthesia in the OR, which obviously it's an anesthesia exposure. It's a big scar. So if you can recognize this entity and avoid overly aggressive treatment, I think that's ideal. Um, that's interesting. I don't think I've ever, no, I don't, to my knowledge, I don't think there's a connection there. Yeah. So, and Kathy. <clears throat> Kathy, I'll give you the line. I want to do this so the folks in the video can hear us. What's the incidence of um, melanoma in children and is it rising? I'm quite convinced in my career, this Yeah, so, um, so the answer is the, the, the incidence of pediatric melanoma is rising. Um, and um, it's really difficult to get an absolute number for what the true incidence is, but we know it is most common in the adolescent subgroup. So patients 12 to 18 by far and away, that's the most, um, that's the most common group. But it's interesting because that's the group that more often than not um, um, presents with a sort of typical changing mole, whereas the prepubertal kids, I think that's why the prognosis for prepubertal melanoma is worse because the diagnosis has been delayed for so long in those kids who have an amelanotic melanoma and they're four and nobody is suspecting it. So, um, but the prevalent, you know, the incidence is increasing and it is, it's scary. I mean, I see it in my practice and, um, you know, I think uh, we all, Obviously, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, they're fine, but it, it, the stakes are really high for missing one. So I, I want to really uh, thank Julianne again for a state-of-the-art, evidence-based, yet highly practical series on pediatric dermatology over these several months. As a reminder, as you're in practice, as she's given us pearls that will help us refer but also help us manage so we don't have to refer everything. All of the talks are archived online uh, under pediatric grand rounds. dhvideo.org is how I typically remember to, to link to it, but uh, you can get to it through the DH webpage. So thanks again, Julianne. Thank you. Thank you.